Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Blue Apron and Casper. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and your friend, Jason Snell. And a good friend. Hello, Stephen Hackett. How are you? Hey, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. People were complaining that we didn't cover news in our last episode, and that's because we recorded two episodes a month ago and haven't spoken since <gasps> until now. So right. now it's 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 uh, this is we're recording this April twenty sixth, twenty seventeen. It's all the latest news plus some mm-hmm. other topics. Yeah, you had so some t- travel. I had some travel. Uh, we're both home yeah. now for a while. And so. we still wanted to stick to that fortnightly schedule because we know how important it is uh, that people can, you know listen to an episode and then just begin to count to 14 That's right. and wait for the next episode. So we <laughs> if, wanted to be there. Yeah. yeah. Even being, though we couldn't actually be there. Being regular is important. So It is. Uh, so yeah, so we have some topics. We have some pre-flight checklists. This week, I would say, I will admit, uh, the line between those two things is a little blurry, but we're just going to go with it because that's the yeah. format. And we've decided that um, some things are topics and other things are just pre-flight items. It's yes. just how it is. It's not follow-up. It's pre-flight checklist. Yeah, it's totally different. This is about news. John Syracuse didn't invent it. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit in this part of the show about NASA's, uh, what they used to call the journey to Mars. I read somewhere they haven't used that language since the inauguration. I can't find it anywhere. They seem to kind of backed off that branding. Uh-huh. But whatever, uh, what I'm going to call it is whatever's happening with Mars. I think they could just put that on a bumper sticker, on a T-shirt, on a website. Sure. What's happening with Mars? Question mark. The T-shirt that can never, ever go out of fashion because they'll never stop asking that question. (laughs) It's true. Uh, And this is back in the news um, in in relation with some other news. So, uh, Astro Peggy, she she is known on Twitter. Uh, Peggy Whitson is the just became like two days ago or something the overall record holder for the most cumulative time spent in space any astronaut any space agency ever the most the most time it's a huge it's a huge record it's cool yeah and as you might imagine there's press around this right there always is and as part of this uh, President Trump called to congratulate her they always have these calls and you know, they have the the videos so you can see both sides and there's always a funny lag and people who don't aren't used to that. You know, they talk over each other. It's always kind of funny to watch. Um, and in that interview, um, he asked about uh, the timing for sending humans to Mars. Is there a schedule? When would you see that happening? And yeah, that's, that's good. Cause you know, that's, that's like the boss asking one of the staff, yeah. like, where do you think the company is going? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was basically her reply. It was, you know, uh, the bill says it'll be in the, in the 2030s. Uh, she also got a pitch in there for NASA funding. She said, uh, and I quote, unfortunately, spaceflight takes a lot of time and money. So getting there will require some international cooperation to get to get it to become a planet wide approach in order to make it successful, just because it is a very expensive endeavor. Uh, again, reiterating not only to him, but to the uh, the press and I think the public at large that this stuff that the journey to Mars in particular is a time consuming expensive proposition and that that takes real not only like perseverance and dedication but like real just actual investment right like real just actual dollars and hours to make it happen 
Exactly. And uh, he replied, as you might uh, imagine, um, with something uh, a little little eyebrow raising that he wants to do it in his first term or at worst during his second term. We'll have to speed that up. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He said that. Um, <laughs> obviously space policy. I'm, I'm just going to read my notes because I wrote this out when I was calmer about it. Obviously space poly policy is not being set by a phone call, but wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say that, at some point, I do wonder if the way that this stuff happens is that we advance space policy and space technology just enough so that a president at the beginning of his first term feels like it's vaguely possible that he might be able to claim victory about this space accomplishment by the end of his second term. Like, can we hang a number on eight years from now, basically? If this, if you, if you follow me here, it's the idea that that maybe the, the best time for a president to make a long-ish range commitment is if there's this theoretical payoff at the end of a theoretical second term where you could say, I did that on that guy. And that once you're, once you're in... If if it's going to take more than eight years, even plausibly, and you know you're already deep into your first term, it's like it's not, somebody else is going to get their name on the plaque that's on the surface of the moon, right? Which is, of course, Nixon got his name on that plaque, even though that was all set in motion by Kennedy, right? Um, so I do I do sort of I mean again with so much that Trump says, you got to kind of unpack it. Um, because it, he may very well think that we can just like or order some people to go to Mars. Can't they just take the space shuttle out of mothballs and aim it at Mars? It's like, no, can't do that. Can't do that. Um, but, you know, this is since since one aspect of this is politics. And yes, it is uh, national pride and a little bit of an ego trip. That's a part of what needs to happen to get this sort of big idea stuff done. Maybe that's what is going on here is let's see you know somebody at nasa somebody who's going to be taking over nasa because they also haven't i think nominated a nasa administrator yet uh says we've got a mars plan and we're going to be able to you know to to do some great milestone but you know while you're still president if you serve two terms and that maybe that's you know maybe that's the selling point there because you want to get people um, to endorse this, which means they've got to feel like they're going to get some sort of historical benefit or some other thing that makes them look awesome in order to say that they approved it. So I, right. I wonder if that's part of what's going on here, really, because to be honest, you know, Donald Trump is interested in looking awesome. And that is part of I mean, that is images, everything politicians in general. I mean, I single out Donald Trump. Politicians are interested in looking awesome. That's really kind of like they want money and their jobs and to look awesome. And so this is one of those cases where you can kind of put your name in the history books if the timing is right. I'm not sure the timing is really right because we're not realistically going to put people on Mars in seven years unless Elon Musk has been talking closely with Donald Trump, which may be. Yeah. And I think there's um, the idea of like national buy-in. We saw that during the space mm -hmm. race, right? And and the, the time leading to Apollo that the public was – uh, for the most part, I think, very much engaged in that sort of project. And then we saw how quickly that faded, right? And that the public interest, oh, we land on the moon and the public moves on. 
and you have all this infrastructure and you end up having to cut missions because of budget and, and all that stuff. But um, I think you're right. It does require that sort of larger buy-in, and a lot of that is politics. Um, but all this took place really just a couple of days after NASA quietly modified its its Mars plans. And there's a nice write-up over on the Planetary Society blog. We'll have a link in the show notes. But it's sort of putting some more pieces in place uh, in what, I guess, the artist formerly known as Journey to Mars. <laughs> Talking about... Uh, in particular, leveraging NASA's, you know, future cislunar presence for for this. So they have like a phase one and a phase two. Phase one being a small space station called the Deep Space Gateway uh, by 2025 in cislunar space. And basically this being uh, built for short-term use, but for deep space training. So all of this stuff uh, that we are doing at the International Space Station, docking, undocking, those sorts of activities, but without the safety net of being in low Earth orbit. You know, if something goes terribly wrong at the International Space Station, they've got capsules there and they can they can get back. Uh, but something like the Deep Space Gateway doesn't have that, right? And, and on the way to Mars, you don't have that. And so to be able to do those things uh, in a different environment, in a more challenging environment, this would be, uh, interestingly, a joint NASA and commercial station. So companies like like SpaceX or Boeing could use this as well to train and to prepare their hardware mm. and astronauts too. And phase two talks about the deep space transport. So uh, being able to support a crew, a crew of four for up to a thousand days, um, this basically launching uh, atop the SLS or even potentially the Falcon Heavy. One article I read said that it's unclear that the deep space transport that the size of it may be too much for the SLS, even the later versions of it. That seems fuzzy right now. But the idea of building this transport ship to actually get us to Mars, not just the Iran capsule, but something that uh, gives you more space and more flexibility for those longer missions. Yeah, this this brings to mind a piece that I saw last week um, that was about testing drones to go to Mars. Which you know it's hard to do because the the atmosphere is different and the gravity is different. So they they try to to do simulations to figure out how to make a drone. But the idea there is that if you had a sort of self guided drone that was taking pictures or even like landing um, and then moving around or and then going back and recharging back at the base station, that if you could build that, you could survey the landscape far more eff- effectively than just having these rovers on the ground. And I thought this actually ties in with something that people at NASA have talked about for a while now, which is, and and people in the space community in general, which is the idea that one way to get to Mars that's a lot cheaper than landing on Mars is going into orbit around Mars or even landing on one of the Martian moons that have basically no gravity and using that as a base. And, you know, on one level, that doesn't get you the, the first boots on the ground in Mars, although eventually it would. But on another level, it would actually be kind of amazing for Mars exploration. And the drones is a good example. Um, the rovers are a good example where right now they have to be autonomous because of the time lag in signal from Earth to Mars. But if you had people orbiting Mars, they could just drive that stuff around real time basically Mm -hmm. and that would be a great way to explore mars 
at a level that we currently, you know, can't do it because we're doing it all by remote control. Um, even even if the autonomous technology gets better, which it presumably would, it's still not quite the same as just having a bunch of people who are able to control vehicles floating around and driving around the surface of Mars and doing experimentation, even without having to pay the cost of, of landing somebody and then refueling and taking them back off from the surface. So there's a lot, hmm. there's a lot of it. I mean, what it's been like 20 plus years that people have been very seriously thinking of all the different scenarios from mars exploration and it does seem like we've gotten to the point now where everybody's looking looking at each other like well right and this so this new plan that's talking about international participation commercial participation it seems to be nasa saying all right we think we could do this if you are all like in with us about this which is great but like somebody needs to put the money on the table and say, all right, we're doing this. Who's with me? And hope that who's with me isn't, you know, uh, responded to with crickets chirping. right? <laughs> um, because, like, I feel like that's where we are now is we are all like at a, at a point where we can draw out a line and say we can get people around Mars, if not on the surface and then on the surface after that, if somebody will the pin in and say yes this is happening and here's how it's happening but as we've been talking about the entire run of this podcast the mars strategy is very is still very hazy so will it clear up in the next year maybe i don't know yeah Uh, i think that the nasa may be in a position depending on who the who is named as the administrator that they may be in a position that they are thrust into this faster than they thought or on the other end, that they have to prove that there is an actual plan past a fancy graphic, right? And that was a lot of the criticism of the Journey to Mars documentation was like, you don't have a lot of detail here. And maybe this phase one, phase two is them rounding that out. Maybe it's it's some other uh, ideas being um, brought to light for the first time. But I agree with you that it, it definitely feels like this this is finally the time that, that something, you know, that first domino is going to fall one way or another. Yeah. Uh, just a, a couple of days after we recorded uh, two episodes ago now, this is old news, but a bunch of people commented that we should talk about it, so I'm going to at least mention it, that SpaceX has flown a reused rocket. So uh, the Falcon 9 that they launched at the end of March had been to space before. They did it again. They landed it again. Successful mission. Uh, it is the first of what will hopefully be many. Uh, I know SpaceX is... Their, their whole business is built on being able to reuse these things, and uh, this is step one, and hopefully what will be many more to follow. Yeah, this is um, – I saw somebody uh, who worked in the space shuttle program cast some shade on this because, of course, the space shuttle is reusable, was reusable, and um, the at least parts of the SRBs were reused. But this is the first commercial vehicle going to orbit, you know, that's been reused. It's a big step. Um they keep talking about you know shortening the amount of time because that was the thing with the shuttle is it was reusable but it took forever to get it to be ready for a, an, another go and so that's what mm-hmm. SpaceX needs to do now is sort of uh, analyze what the cost is to reduce the turnaround and uh, and that'll be a big deal because they you know and again Elon Musk talks a good game about quick turnaround but wouldn't that be something if they could do a very quick turnaround that then that really changes the game. Totally. Uh, he has said publicly that they want to bring that time down to just a day. Yeah. That maybe Elon Musk time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but 
It can't, it can't so be worse than the shuttle. Is the rule right. of Elon Musk time that it's multiplied by three or that you just add three years? Because <laughs> mm. that makes a difference, right? Three days versus three years and a day. Uh, I guess we'll see. I have often thought about how to how to figure that equation. So if a listener has an equation for Elon Musk time with backup of when he said things would happen versus when they do happen, yeah. I'd be very interested to see that. Uh, to, as yeah. we record this, today we had the first live stream of 4K video from space. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, this is, um, you know, we think... Our relationship with outer space is often uh, based on the, you know, few of us are going into space, right? So it's based on the images we see and the quality of those images. So like the the film images taken, uh, the stills taken by Apollo astronauts, the film that they that they used um, on the ground, the live video of uh, Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon that was all grainy and and black and white, you know, that that fixes in in our minds. Um, There was the IMAX movie that was shot at the International Space Station and the shuttle where you really got high quality outer space imagery, which is awesome. But of course, you know, they brought the film back to Earth and developed it and all of that. This is 4K video. It's a red camera in the hands of Astro Peggy, Peggy Whitson, who we mentioned earlier, um, streaming. So she's got the red camera, the 4K camera, and she streams it live. So they had a they had a downlink of her video stream. I wonder what the settings were if they had like custom compression settings going on um, in the camera, or whether there was like a, a an encoded like an encoder that came with the camera that got it down in a format that would be acceptable for the link. And they probably also had to time like where the space station was so that they got the best data link down from there at that point. And I wonder if they shut off some stuff to maximize the bandwidth behind the scenes is fascinating but the bottom line is they did a 4k live video stream from the space station which is pretty cool that they could get that much video down there and it was live because i i am i'm always amazed by the quality of live video from space it used to be really bad and it keeps getting better um from from rockets going into space and from the space station so it's a fun little thing it was a stunt sort of um in in association with NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, and Amazon was boasting about it because they did the live stream infrastructure for it on AWS. Lots of tech stuff going on there, but bottom line, 4K live video from space. Pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It it comes on the heels, too, of United Launch Alliance trying a 360-degree live stream of a rocket launch, I think, last week. Unfortunately, that did not work. They had it basically (laughs) cut out at launch. Um, and it came back and the rocket was gone. So, you know, oh, well. maybe the whole thing was a hoax. <laughs> but it's pro- uh, it's, it is cool. It's probably it is aliens. Co- most definitely. Uh, but it is cool to see this stuff. I can imagine some really beautiful footage, uh, 4K footage from the station. Uh, so, yeah, it's cool. As The tech nerd in me is excited by this news. Uh, lastly, I did want to point our listeners to an episode of Ungenius. It's a podcast that I do here on Relay about weird Wikipedia articles. That for real, it's not a joke. And we recently did an episode on moon landing conspiracies that I think our liftoff audience will enjoy, where basically I talk Mike Hurley, my uh, co-host, into believing that we actually landed on the moon. So that one's a lot of fun. Uh, I was reminded of it, and you were talking about you know grainy footage and photographs. A lot of that is in that episode of Ungenius. So nice. go check it out. All right, we should take a break to tell you about one of our sponsors in this episode of Liftoff, uh, brought to you by... 
Blue Apron, the number one recipe delivery service with the freshest ingredients. For less than $10 per meal, you can get seasonal recipes with fresh, high-quality ingredients. And you make it yourself. These are delicious home-cooked meals. They give you the ingredients. They give you the recipe on this neat card that you can reuse later. If you like it, you save it. That's what we do. And you make those. You go buy those ingredients later at the store, and you make them again. Plus, you're getting great new ingredients and recipes from Blue Apron every week. They have uh, high-quality ingredients. The seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals, and their produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. Each Blue Apron meal comes with that recipe card and ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. They're pre-portioned. There's no food waste, and it's very easy to do, and you take pride in the thing that you've cooked. Plus, reuse those recipes later and add variety to your life. You'll be able to cook meals like sweet and sour salmon with bok choy and ginger fried rice, spicy chicken sandwiches with Alabama white sauce and sweet potato. Mmm, tasty. Blue Apron delivers to 99% of the continental U.S. There's no weekly commitment. You look ahead on their website, and if there's a week where the recipes just don't thrill you, you just skip it. There's no penalty. They don't bill you for that week. You just move on. You save your money. You make other stuff that week, and then you can come back to Blue Apron the next week with the next set of ingredients. And you can even pick and choose sort of like from a small roster of what's available in a week, and you get some choices to make there as well. So you can take control of your, your recipe. Um, check out this week's menu and get three meals for free with your first purchase, including free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You'll love cooking food yourself in less than 40 minutes. That is wonderful and feed your family with it. And it's all made with good ingredients. Really, there's no reason not to give it a try. Blueapron.com slash liftoff. Thank you, Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right. So we begin our, our topic with uh, it's 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 bittersweet this one I think we we've kind of danced around this topic for a little while but uh, the calendar dictates that we start it this week that is Cassini's grand finale we spoke about Cassini I don't know, dozens of times it is the the spacecraft that is currently at Saturn it's been studying Saturn and its moons for I don't even know how long I should know how long but a long time and. It has started as of just a couple of days ago, what is called the grand finale. So the idea here is that the Cassini spacecraft is running out of fuel. NASA is going to be unable to control it, and they need to uh, basically dispose of it properly. But you don't want to hit a moon in the Saturn system because some of those moons, as we're going to get into later, uh, may have the recipe for life. And you don't want to disrupt any of that with the you know, anything on the Cassini craft. And so the idea is that they're going to plummet it into the upper atmosphere of Saturn where it will burn up and break up and not uh, not cause any problems on any of those moons. Right. It may kill to- some perfectly innocent floating, you know, gas bag whale creatures in Saturn's atmosphere. We don't know, but pro- probably that's, not. Th- that's not the official stance that's of the not, Liftoff podcast. No. Also, people should... Uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you for disclaiming my statements. Um, people should follow Cassini No, which is Cassini N-O-O-O on Twitter, which wow. is a bot that just goes, no, Cassini can't be ending, no, over and over again. It's hilarious. And several astronomers I follow on Twitter just occasionally will retweet something from Cassini uh, No bot because everybody's very sad. It has been a great mission, but it has to come to an end. And now is the time. Well, okay, September 
is the time. But it starts now. And we've talked about this before. This is the year of living dangerously for Cassini. Because now that they know they're going to crash this thing, they're going to be a little bit looser with where they steer it into areas that have a little more danger attached. Because really, you know, the car is going to be totaled anyway. So you might as well have some fun. So that's what they're gonna. That's what they're gonna do. The grand finale is is reckless driving in Saturn, basically. It's good. So this uh, this past weekend, it made a close pass of the moon Titan, which spoke about the moon draft, giant moon at Saturn, and by flying, it was within six hundred or so miles above Titan's surface, and doing that pulled it into what will be its final orbits, and it, basically, it is plunging. Uh, in between uh, the top of Saturn's atmosphere and the innermost rings. Uh, very close. There's lots of debris there. In fact, they're, they're using the high-gain antenna as a shield from ring debris. Uh, you know, if you got that, you can, you can double as a, as a shield, I guess. And as time goes on, they're going to get closer and closer and faster and faster and, again, begin to skim the atmosphere and they get pulled down into it. Yeah, so it's it's the not only is this a great close flyby of Titan, the last one, but now they're in the death spiral sort of, where they will go a hundred and what is it? No, it's one hundred twenty-seven times by Titan, and this is the best one. Now they'll go twenty-two times uh, with these wacky orbits. That I mean, again, what we're describing here is if you if you picture Saturn as a ball with that ring around it, right? They're going to fly this spaceship twenty-two times in the space between the ball and the inner part of the ring, right? That little narrow kind of gap that you draw when you draw a circle around the, the, the thing, when you make a Saturn image, it's like, it's not that big. And they're just going to keep going down through there, which is why it carries some risk. But it's also, I mean, it's going to be great science and it's going to be some spectacular photography. It is going to be amazing. And then it'll, and then it'll be gone. And that'll be sad, but it'll be, it's going to be amazing a, between now and September as it makes these these passes. Mm-hmm. The uh, we should say too this this final close flyby of Titan was not just to get the spacecraft where it needs to be. So because it was the closest flyover, they looked at the uh, North Pole, the the polar region, observing it with radar for the first time, and they're looking at these. Uh, these small lakes on Titan's surface and trying to understand um, how they work, basically. So it, it appears that over time that islands sort of appear and disappear and then reappear in some of these lakes, and they're trying to understand the depth and the composition so they can kind of get a better picture of what's going on Titan's surface. So even even though this last pass of Titan was to pull it into these orbits, uh, even then NASA and JPL are using that to to study the moon itself. Yeah. It's all good. I mean, this is the, you wring every last bit of science out of a mission like this that you possibly can. And that's what they're, that's what they're doing here. It gives them a Titan opportunity. And now it gives them this unique opportunity to be um, very fat, going very fast, but being very close to Saturn. And so they can look at the rings and they can look at Saturn and then ultimately get pulled down into, into Saturn. And that's the end. Mm Mm-hmm. Like you said, that is that is slated for the end of September. They don't actually have an exact date, depending on the drag as it gets closer to the atmosphere. But should be 22 such orbits, should be the end of September. And, I mean, we're talking speeds between like 75 and 78,000 miles an hour. Uh, it's moving very quickly. 
Again, it, they have it turned to use the high gain antenna to shield from ring debris. They don't want to break up if they hit a chunk of ring. Uh, they want to make sure that it gets down to Saturn intact. And it's going to be kind of a slow uh, and steady pace. And so we're going we're to keep an eye on this. Yep. Um, I'm sure that, that uh, NASA will have uh, lots of news out when it finally dips too low uh, not to be heard from again. Definitely. And there will be, I can't imagine what's going to happen when the uh, Cassini no bot reaches the end. Right, that'll be just. It's gonna be, it's gonna be sad. It's just gonna be sobbing for a while, and on Twitter, and then, and then probably it'll go through the stages of grief, and then I wonder what happens after that. Maybe it's just silent, but just silent. Oh, I followed it, so I will be following along. It is. It, there'll be a link in the show notes. It is really funny. Yeah, it all is. <laughs> uh, we're also gonna talk about Ocean Worlds, uh, but first, I want to tell you about our second sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by. Casper. Casper is a company that is focused on sleep. They make the perfect premium mattress and sell it online for a fraction of what it would cost in a store. Casper's mattress is award-winning. It was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper now also offers adaptive pillows and soft, breathable sheets. They got the, the whole thing covered for you. Like I said, this was developed in-house. A team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing this mattress. It is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's no surprise that they have an average 4.8 stars across more than 30,000 global reviews. Their San Francisco research and development team have developed this proprietary foam that relieves pressure and increases airflow. Then they combined it with a springy comfort layer to contour to your body and keep you cool. This means that the Casper mattress has just the right sink and just the right bounce. And they are quality and they're at a great price. They're designed and developed right here in the U.S. of A. And they cut the hassle and cost of dealing with showrooms. It's really my favorite thing. If you go to the Casper website, casper.com liftoff, you p- click on the mattress and you click what size you want. You're not going into a store. You're not trying something out when there's a salesperson hovering over you. If you're like me, you don't want to do that. And that experience is just such a big win over how you used to buy a mattress. Casper makes it easy and convenient. And they also make it risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns in the U.S., Canada, and now a little part of the world called the United Kingdom. With Casper, you can get to sleep on their mattress before you make a decision. Try it out for 100 nights and decide if it's the mattress you want to spend a third of your life on. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash liftoff and use the code liftoff at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper for the support of this show and Relay FM. So, Jason, tell me about Ocean Worlds. You got to love Ocean Worlds because they're, well, they're like moons that have water on them. We've talked about them before. They're some of the most interesting we things. We, we drafted, I drafted many of them. I think I drafted them. Uh, but anyway, there's always action going on. This is, okay, I'm going to be slightly, I'm, I was going to say cynical, but let's go back to realistic and talk about what okay. we were talking about in terms of politics the last time. Like, okay. one of the ways you get public interest, you get politician interest and you get funding is by talking about searching for life now it is fundamental discovering whether there's life outside of the earth is a huge 
thing for society, for humanity, uh, for our understanding of how the universe works. Is life everywhere that it could possibly be generated or is it incredibly rare? We don't know because we've only ever got one example of it and it's us. So it's a real thing, but it's also obviously NASA and other space agencies have realized that this is the wedge to use to justify space exploration and get promotion in the media and get funding from Congress and places like that. So uh, what we've seen like in Mars, when they had the first things about potentially life being discovered on Mars, which has been greatly debated about whether there's real evidence in those rocks that uh, there might have been lifelike things on Mars. It was a useful way for for NASA and other space agencies to point at Mars and say, see, we need to go there. Um, we have now that we have this evidence about liquid on the surface of Mars in the past. We need to go there. We need to, we need to explore. It is now working not just for Mars, uh, but for these ocean worlds, the Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter and Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn, both of which have large liquid water oceans beneath their icy surfaces. Um, Europa has more water, than earth that's then is in earth's oceans europa's ocean is larger in volume that's a lot of water so um so the the missions continue and the press releases continue because this is how you build up enthusiasm and excitement as a uh as space agency where you're relying on other people to give you money to do these things so uh, we got two in the last couple of weeks bits of news about these ocean worlds first one is from Cassini. No! Our old pal who's dying and is going to be gone soon. Um, Cassini has discovered um, more about the plumes found around Enceladus. Now, Cassini discovered these plumes. It doesn't have instruments designed to sample them, but, um, but it discovered that Enceladus is shooting off geysers of liquid into space, basically, from its ocean. And the latest findings suggest that there's hydrogen in the plumes. Uh, this follows up on earlier uh, evidence that there were hydrothermal vents, basically, on the seafloor. And when we talked to Emily Lakdawalla a while ago, she pointed out that this is one of the important things about whether there's life in these oceans is, are they just, you know, sterile bands of water between ice layers, or is there rock and heat at the bottom? Because that generates energy, injects energy into the system. It becomes much more important for life. Now, finding the hydrogen in these plumes suggests, again, it's an, another bit of proof that hydrogen gas is being inserted into the ocean by hydrothermal activity on the seafloor, which means there's a heat source. There's a way that microbes could obtain energy. Uh, a lot of people think that one of the first, if not the first way that life uh, was able to get energy to live on Earth was these, you know, hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. Um, you combine hydrogen with CO2, you generate methane. It's a it's an energy generation technique. So um, they, again, this is not, this is not, we discovered life in the ocean of Enceladus. But what it is, is saying, here's more evidence on the pile that Enceladus has all the pieces that right. allow life to flourish if it emerged there. But that's all we know. So this is just another step down that. And, and it leaves that question mark, which is, so want to learn more? 
we are going to have to send some more missions there and do some more work to figure out more about whether there's life around Saturn on Enceladus, inside Enceladus. But Enceladus was not the the only world they're talking about. No. Um, they, they also talked about Europa using uh, findings from the Hubble Space Telescope. This evidence is from uh, 2016, but it's combined with evidence in 2014 that uh, Europa may also have these plumes of material uh, into, into space, and, and more so that these two cases in 2014-2016 are probably the same plume from from the same place. Yeah, the 2016 so, plume is bigger than the one in 2014. Um, but this is, you know, th- again, piecing together the evidence, you can see it here. Like, they look at the surface of Europa um, with the stuff from Galileo when it was orbiting around Jupiter and taking high-resolution pictures. And you see these like look like cracks in the crust of Europa. And people are like, oh, I wonder if the ice is thinner there, if that might be a source of water bubbling up to the surface. And then in 2014, they get this view of sort of like, I think that's a, a, a fountain. Like, I think that's a geyser that's pluming water out into space. Um, it, right. And so this is not telling us anything we didn't already suspect, but it is stronger proof that yes, indeed, we saw another plume and this one rises a hundred kilometers above the surface and it's over that area with the cracks. So it's like, again, not a surprise, but it's more like yet another brick, you know, being built here of evidence that, this is what this process is, that there is not only water, which we knew inside Europa, but that this this area of the surface is there because there it's thin and water is coming up and being forcefully ejected into space. So it, it, they're building the case that these two moons have very similar things going on potentially. Right, right. And... and- Right, and, the, and it's, the, it, it's counterintuitive a way you think like water into space. That seems ridiculous. Wouldn't it just bubble up? But remember, these are really small bodies. There's there's not a whole lot of, of of gravity going on here, so it doesn't take a lot of force for for you to make a jet that just kind of floats away from the moon, and that's what's happening here. Right, and and you don't have thick atmospheres to dilute it or to keep it. I mean, th- these these openings are a clear shot <laughs> yeah. into space, yeah. more or less. Yeah, exactly right. So we've talked before about the Europa Clipper idea, which is a uh, a mission to Europa that is in the works for the 2020s. There was talk that in this past week or two about a joint Europa mission between NASA and the European Space Agency, where the ESA would build an orbiter and NASA would build a lander that would come off of that orbiter and land on Europa. Now, it's so early that it's hard to tell whether this is jockeying for position for funding, whether, you know, these are totally pie in the sky or whether there's more detail, you know, that that is uh, likely to become real here. Uh, sometimes it's hard to tell, especially on the outside, like, is this big talk or is this something that's a real serious plan? But it definitely seems like all the space agencies are seriously gearing up. And we know that there are, is strong support in Congress in the U.S. for funding a mission to Europa. So it sounds like there may, be, in fact, be multiple missions to Europa in the offing to learn a whole lot more about this one of the most interesting places in the solar system in terms of wondering if there's life in the solar system that isn't us. Yeah, and and that's always like like you how you open this. That's always something that you you've got to look for, think about when a space agency has one of these big 
press pushes, right? That there's not necessarily a ton of new stuff in this, but it's it's a bunch of different things packaged together and building the case for future exploration. You want to capture the attention of the public, right? That's part of the deal. You have to that's that's you've got to you've got to get it in the in the in the news cycle that the, this is exciting and that it's important for humanity that we learn these things and that that's all. I mean, NASA and other space agencies they're smart. They they again, you you cannot look at this uh industry and the, the these agencies and not understand that there is a game that has to be played for them to just Justify their existence and get funding to do the science they want to do, and they, that means they have to tell a story. And one of the stories, the great stories, is we think you know all of our life started in in the oceans and in these certain conditions, and there are places in the solar system that have oceans with those conditions. There may be life there. Let's go look. And that's the story they're telling. And it's a great story. It's an exciting story. I'm not saying that it's like something they're making up, but it is something that they're carefully kind of um, cultivating. Sure. And, and uh, I think that's totally fair. Like, I don't, I don't have a, a problem with them needing to play that game uh, when what they're presenting has merit on its own. And I think that clearly what's going on in these two moons has merit on its own, right? That, you're not stringing together things just for the political or for the the financial side of it, but there is real science, there is real exploration and news going on here, and using that as a launch pad to, to something else. Well, and, and this, if we, this is another piece of news that I didn't I didn't throw up at the beginning, but uh, I'll mention now, which is, you know, the, Alan Stern and the people behind New Horizons had a meeting. And they were tweeting all about it, where they were just basically discussing what they want to propose for a return mission to Pluto. Um, and uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, there's a, a nice uh, story from Lauren Grush on The Verge about it. And she makes the point that is absolutely the key point here. And it's relevant to what we were just saying, which is the biggest challenge of a Pluto orbiter mission is competing with all the other planetary missions out there. The solar system is a big dynamic place, and there are many popular destinations that scientists want to explore. And the challenge, I think, that's, so that's Lauren Grush. The challenge, I think, that, that the New Horizons people have is justifying a return to Pluto. What story do they tell? They are going to tell the story of like, hey, those pictures from Pluto were awesome. We learned a lot. There are a lot of questions we've got. It's an interesting part of the solar system. Imagine if we could orbit around it and uh and and take our time to learn a whole lot more in a, in a whole lot more detail we only had a few minutes with it before and look what we did imagine if we could spend days or weeks or months around that but there are lots of other stories like we should go back to neptune <laughs> right which is like we haven't done that and there's europa and enceladus there's so many other stories so that's that's the challenge is not that this isn't all interesting it's that budgets are limited and the ones with the sort of best stories to tell that get the funding are the ones that are going to win so the, it's storytelling doesn't it's not scientific but it's required it's part of the process of getting to do science totally fair well i think that i think that about does it yeah i think that's enough for a fortnight don't you uh, i do if you want to find uh, links for all the stuff we talked about you can do so at our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 45. You can get in touch with us there via email. You can find us on Twitter. Jason is at jsnell, and you can find me there as ismh. Until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.